Good morning, CHD. Today, I've got two guests for you, James Corbett and David Bell. David has worked at the WHO for about nine years. He is an MD, PhD from Australia, and knows a whole lot about what is going on at the World Health Organization. Um, what I wanted to do today is, we've talked a lot, we've talked four or five times with James Corbett, regarding the World Health Organization, the International Health Regulation Amendments, and the proposed pandemic treaty and what they're really about. But let's go back at least 20 years and talk about the global biosecurity agenda, the whole idea of pandemic preparedness, of um, One Health, and where this came from what it was intended to do, where it's going, was it hijacked, was it always a nefarious agenda, and how then did the IHR amendments and the pandemic treaty fit into this, and who were the funders? So um, let's start right now. Um, David, I wonder if you can tell us um, where did this whole global biosecurity agenda come from? What, what do you remember? Yeah, there's two issues you brought up, the the pandemic or biosecurity agenda and One Health, and they're obviously interlinked, but they have different ancestries, I think. Um, the biosecurity agenda, well, certainly the, the way we see it now came, I think, 20, 25 years ago when we started to get public-private partnerships in international health. So before that, it had been, you know, the emphasis was on community-based health, horizontal programs, etc. local communities being empowered, to use a jargon of that time, to manage their own health. Um, we, got, we started getting you know, public-private partnerships, which has appeared for us in the health field to be more money and therefore a good thing. So yeah. tell me, how can you impose a public-private partnership on, you know, healthcare? You don't have to impose it because it brings more money and everyone thinks more money must be good. So, you know, you can treat more malaria cases if you have more money for malaria. So, Right, but, but who wants to donate money for someone else's health care? Well, exactly. So it, it looks good at the time, but you, what everyone forgets is that there, there are always strings attached. So if it's coming from private investors or individuals or from corporations, they do that because they want something back and it's usually more than a, a warm fuzzy feeling in the stomach. So as it's become, you know, what this has done is shifted this whole paradigm of international public health from this sort of horizontal community-based approach to a commodity-based approach because that's where you can get money. So all, nearly all the public-private partnerships steered the whole agenda towards you know, vaccination, uh, medicines that are off patent, sorry, that are on patent, et cetera, anything that you can make a significant amount of money out of. And there's been a very strong push, obviously, for vaccines because they are a commodity that you can argue you can give to everyone on earth repeatedly. 
So we, we've seen we see now these very vertical sort of approach to international public health, where you have centralised rules saying what commodities will go to the people, and it's no longer a pull from the people; it's a push from above. And the beneficiaries have very much been the farmer and farmer investors, etc., that have that brought the money to these partnerships. So. It was very naive, I think, of the health world to take it on. Um, but now there is, it has so skewed the whole agenda that most people in the global health field are funded through these sorts of mechanisms. So um, for these people to get out of it now and stop it would be decimating their own salaries. So we have this huge problem where we have this big health bureaucracy that's essentially captured by for-profit entities through this. Now, what, what countries are you referring to, David? Predominantly low-middle-income countries, which is most people on Earth. Um, and that is where, you know, the push for philanthropy and so on has, has gone. And that was a traditional um, field for, you know, the World Health Organization, et cetera. Uh, and UNICEF and so on. And but I, we've seen really clearly in COVID what has happened. So rather than dealing with you know, tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, that are the you know, some of the big issues there, but even bigger issues are uh, nutritional deficiencies, malnutrition, et cetera, mm-hmm. sanitation. It, rather than prioritising those, they've been prioritising uh, COVAX, which is the mass vaccination with you know, COVID vaccines. Um, and knowing that everyone in these, virtually everyone is already into COVID, COVID's been through there. Knowing that 50% of the people say in sub-Saharan Africa are under 20 years of age, so they're at near zero risk. So it's it's become quite extreme where the the, the need has gone out the window. The, the idea that you would prioritise disease burden has gone out the window. And now we just talk about equity vaccine equity, which means making everyone on earth have the same commodity, irrespective of their need. Okay. So One Health is yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, to me, it's probably you know, 100,000 years old or more. It's as long as humans have been talking to each other and aware, you know, dealing with medicine, which is probably that old. Um, the, you know, the, the idea that the environment affects our health and animal health affects our health and so on is age old and obvious. You know, if, uh, if your cows all die of tuberculosis, then you won't have any food to eat and you may catch bovine TB from your cattle. So um, dealing with them so that you minimise tuberculosis is, is a good for the farmer. Um, you know, polluted rivers are a bad idea. We, we normally put toilets well away from the river where we get the water, and we've done that for 100,000 years. So the, the idea of One Health is not new. It's just a holistic um, view of medicine, aware of the environment. But what has happened is, um, well, two things. One is, is a sort of weird religion that's arisen over the last um, few years. So the Lancet in their... Um, January um, editorial on this talked, uh, I'll just quote there, all life is equal and of equal value. And by that, they very explicit, they meant, you know, any animal is the same value as any human. So, you know, logically following this sort of dogma, if, you know, you've got a sick calf or a sick rabbit and your daughter's sick, 
you toss up, you know, do you save the rabbit or save your daughter? And virtually every culture in the history of mankind would say that's an idiotic paradigm. But, but that is what a lot of the people pushing the One Health Agenda are saying and writing and seem to be quite serious about. So that gives you an idea of who's driving, you know, the sort of thought processes that are driving this. But the other way is being, if you go back to this more holistic view of One Health where, you know, humans are what you're on about, but you're recognising that they're affected by their environment, then that's fine if you have a public health paradigm where the, the idea of public health is to give people advice and support to make evidence-based decisions on their health in their context and communities to make these decisions. And that's what One Health should be. It should be, you know, you're providing a service that's voluntary and people can take it or leave it, but you're giving advice to help them in their decisions and they know how best to do it because they can prioritise that part of their health versus other parts versus their family versus where they want to go on holiday and they make their decisions in their context. But how, if you take what public health and you make it a prescriptive thing where public health's role is to tell people what to do, then if you can expand this through One Health to say, you know, climate change is a threat somehow, you know, to old people who might get sick or die from, you know, high temperatures or a spread of, you know, mosquito-borne diseases, etc. then you can say, therefore, we should control anthropogenic effects on climate. And you can, you know, you can ignore all the other effects. You can just, you can take the paradigm, anthropogenic effects are the only effect on climate, and therefore you should con control all human activity in order to, you know, for a public health good. So th this Let is where we've gone. Yeah. Just yeah. You're, you're using the term anthropogenic, and it's used a lot in the Lancet by the One Health mm. people, and it means caused by human beings. Yes. Okay. And I think they're using that term. It's a, it's a you know, code word for them, but it's also designed for the rest of the population to not know what it means. Yeah. So it means an in, through the influence of human beings. So it means that human beings have an impact on their environment, which they absolutely do. If you cut down a tree, there's less trees in your garden. Um, it, but one of the problems with this is that you forget that humans are part of nature as well. The, you know, we are not unnatural beings. We are natural beings working the way that we evolved to work. So saying there are too many humans on Earth is not a sensible way of dealing with nature because we are part of nature. But you can say that humans are better off having wilderness areas or, you know, having clean rivers, etc. And therefore, you know, jointly you deal with that. But you're putting humans as the primary beings that we should be concerned about. So, but, I mean, what has gone wrong, or essentially how this has been hijacked, is they've used this concept and they've tied it to the idea that public health is telling people what to do and ordering people around. I think yeah. that's the underlying philosophical issue that we have to yeah. draw out of this conversation because it's the entire conceptual framework around which this is built that I think is important. And if I can yeah. interject for a this, moment, um, let's put a pin in the One Health conversation. This is extremely important, but I think we have to, we have to go back to that formation mm -hmm. of the biosecurity paradigm, which 
is the underlying infrastructure, the intellectual infrastructure upon which this One Health infrastructure is being erected. And my research is specifically, I've done a lot of research in the US context. So in that context, I would identify it going back, presumably we could go back decades, we could go back to the founding of the World Health Organization, but I would say specifically 1999 was the, the moment at which the homeland security phrase really entered the political lexicon in the United States via the Answer Institute, which started its Institute for Homeland Security under uh, National War College de Department Chair uh, Randall Larson. And they uh, immediately went to work constructing a homeland security course that was going to be co-taught by Larson and his National War College buddy, Robert Cadlick, on which interestingly, was slated to begin on September 11th, 2001. And of course, Homeland Security entered the public consciousness in a pretty interesting way on that particular day. But it was something that happened in the, in the summer of 2001, pr prior to those events, that also involved that same Robert Cadlick, who was part of that dark winter exercise that we've talked about here, um, you and me, Meryl, we've talked about in the past. And he was the one who actually, in the fake news clip that they created for this simulation of a spreading smallpox terrorist event, um, he's the one who actually comes up with that dark winter phrase, which ends up being the name of the, the whole operation. But from that point, and from obviously the anthrax attacks of October 2001, that is where we start to see the the massive investment in the infrastructure for pandemic preparedness, broadly speaking. And you start to see, for example, the um, Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act passed by Congress in 2006, which creates the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response position. Um, so that act was uh, drafted at least in part by Robert Cadlick, the aforementioned Robert Cadlick, who goes on to become the ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, under Trump um, in 2017. What an interesting coincidence. Um, and from that point, we start to see the National Security, uh, sorry, the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, which starts to try to regulate research into H5N1 and other such things. Uh, that's where we start to see the massive investment in this. But all of this biosecurity infrastructure creation, I think, is the funding, the, the fundamental intellectual infrastructure for the idea that gets promoted through the UN and other the World Health Organization and other organizations as One Health. Yes, of course, there is a holistic approach to understanding that we are part of the environment and all of that. That is the natural sort of human way of being in the world, but that is not what they are talking about when they talk about One Health. They are talking about a, a conception of public health that, as you indicate there, is based, first of all, as you indicate in your excellent article, I hope people will read it, Your Daughter for a Rat, and let's put that on the, uh, on the record because I think it's a good article for exploring this Lancet promoted One Health agenda. Um, so it's based on a degradation of hum humanity to the level of animals, um, which as you've already stated, at the very least is goes against some of the most fundamental um, presuppositions that we have as human beings, which I think is related to the breakdown in vitalism, which was being promoted in a document called uh, Biodigital Convergence that was put out by Policy Horizons Canada a couple of years ago. We're all gonna merge with machines in all sorts of different ways. So we have to break down this old philosophical concept of vitalism. That there's a difference between organic and inorganic matter, they argue. Um, but, but fundamentally, this is all based on the idea of public health, which is predicated on not the, 
not the opportunity for people to access services, health services voluntarily. No, no, no. This is about mandates, restrictions, uh, injunctions. You must do this. We get to determine what is healthy, not just for you, but for, you know, the the rats and the spiders and whatever else. And we get to dictate what you should do in that sense. And so I say, fundamentally, I, I think our bottom line has to be that any theoretical structure that is f- founded on a fundamental abrogation of our bodily autonomy and our right to yes. choose what health is and how we access that is by definition on its face, null and void. Uh, I agree completely. And just, just to put this in context, um, People need to forget that we weren't dying in droves 30 years ago. Um, and you know, the, the, the bad pandemics in history were almost all bacterial. They don't happen anymore because we have better sanitation antibiotics. The, the Spanish flu, you know, most of the deaths were due to secondary bacterial infections, et cetera. Since then, you know, putting COVID out of the way because we, you know, the, the whole death thing is absolutely unclear with COVID because of the way it was run. But, you know, there was a, a flu pandemic in 57, 58, 168, 69, you know, when we had Woodstock. And the way we coped is we went on normal. And less people died in each of those than die every year of tuberculosis. And so you know, there is no, you know, we are told all the time that pandemics are becoming more frequent, pandemics are killing more people, et cetera. It's completely false. And it's just it's an it's to scare people's behavioural psychology in order to get them to comply with, as you were saying, this sort of biosecurity agenda that we're being pushed with. So um, I'm going to go back further and say that the United States, as far as we know in the open literature, developed a biological warfare program beginning in 1943 um, during the Second World War to create weapons to be used against the Germans and the Japanese in the event that they were needed. And the United States was producing anthrax weapons as cattle cakes um, before the end of the war, which were not used. And there were a number of weapons. There were weapons against uh, plants and animals developed also to be used as an anti-food weapon um, against the enemy. And the United States did not shut that program down um, after the war, it was felt, um, you know, there was a, a mem that biological warfare was the poor man's atomic bomb. And so um, we all needed to do it and we needed to be aware of it. And we needed to have some protection against it because all these poor countries could develop it too, because it didn't cost that much to, to build the, up the technology. Now, then in uh 1969 and 1970, Nixon suddenly, seems sudden, uh, said the United States was going to unilaterally stop its biological weapons program and was going to encourage the rest of the world to do that as well. And we came up with a treaty and everybody, you know, most countries, almost all countries signed it and it went into force in 1975, but it didn't have teeth. It didn't have inspections. It didn't have punishments. And shortly, and and that was probably uh, a method to sort of deal with all the bad publicity over Vietnam and questions about whether biological and chemical weapons had been used in Southeast Asia. Um, There was some, I think, pretty good evidence that uh, nerve gas, chemical weapons were used in Laos, for instance, not not in Vietnam. Um, It was felt immediately afterwards that we developed 
technology, I've, I've talked about this once before, um, to genetically engineer bacteria and viruses. And suddenly the United States had a, um, an advantage over most other countries because our biotechnology was more advanced. And so it wasn't the poor, it, if you use the genetic engineering for a period of time, it was no longer the poor man's atomic bomb. So we sort of were, you know, moving along with uh, a, what was called at that time a biodefense program. <clears throat> and the doctors and scientists in, the, in these programs, especially when they're military officers, feel that their particular enclave can gain more authority if they can produce military weapons. So there was a, a lot of talk about how really the biological weapons could be reinterpreted. And um, the United States had a lot more leeway to develop weapons. And it was, it was, it was still essentially against the law, but the United States started going beyond what was considered by the, the, the professionals in the field. Okay. So in 2001 um, germs, the book Germs came out, and it was written by three New York Times reporters and got a full-page you know, article in the New York Times on the 4th of September, 2001, and talked about these three programs under the Clinton administration that most people thought were illegal but had been going on to develop anthrax. What you know? What is going on? What is the federal government doing? And are they allowed? Um, I would submit that planning for things, you know, takes years. I mean, in the federal government, you know, if things go through many committees and many hands, and uh, so when 2001 and the anthrax letters appeared, I would submit that probably that was prepared for several years, and maybe that fits in with the answer and Randall Larson and um, Robert Cadillac beginning this push over the need for biological weapons or biological defense, whatever it was, or pandemic preparedness, because they melded. So the pandemics, the natural pandemics, and the biological warfare suddenly became part of one thing with perhaps avian influenza kind of in the middle, like, Maybe it was natural or maybe it was engineered. You know, we knew the anthrax had to be engineered <laughs> or just wind up with all this anthrax in letters. But, um, you know, what about avian flu? Wasn't clear. And so, again, a lot of money started getting spent for biological defense. But within that, those, and I'm talking a lot of money, um, so probably at least we know for the last 10 years, about $10 billion a year has been spent by the federal government on pandemic preparedness. And so we don't know exactly where all that money went. It was farmed out to many different departments and, and was given in many different kinds of grants. Um, a lot of education grants, for instance, were to teach people about this One Health and One Health approach, right? So 
and your training, you would think that a lot of money would be spent on training doctors and nurses and paraprofessionals in health, but a lot of it went to training the existing professionals around the world in emergencies, emergency preparedness, pandemics, you know, getting labs ready to detect pandemic organisms rather than training barefoot doctors. So um, in 2004, the Project BioShield Act was passed, 2005, the PREP Act. So these were all helping to build up the, the legal structure as well as um, the financial structure for what's gone on recently, allowing the EUAs, as I said before, EUAs could not be, there did not exist um, an EUA before 2005. There was no law. You either were part of an experiment and you had full informed consent or you were getting a licensed drug. And those were the only two ways you could get a medicine in the United States legally until 2005. Can I just point out, I think it's important to note that once again, I think this is a question of framing because you'll notice that the uh, the question becomes one of biodefense, biosecurity. And when it is put into that particular category, people will treat it differently. It will get different funding levels. It will be funded by different agencies. It will be placed under national classification because of a secu sensitive security issue, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that is kind of the magic framework by which they can push all of this under the rug and have the the, the public-facing side of it, which I think is really the development of the institutional One Health idea, um, which itself, I think all of these things are predicated on, A, that abrogation of fundamental human rights to bodily autonomy, um, but B, also a technocratic mindset that is manifested in the, well, we... Uh, I mean, first of all, the first order of thinking is, well, these germs and things can be weaponized, so we have to do that so that we can defend against that. Of course, that's the way that that's framed. But also, just generally, then the idea becomes that health is something that we can attain by engineering the right genetic sequence in the right things and t tampering and tinkering with Mother Nature in just the right way to make it better for our purposes, which seems to go against that One Health approach, unless, of course, the One Health approach is being weaponized essentially by the exact same people who have made this into a biosecurity issue. Yeah, and I, it's interesting that a lot of this is driven by people from software and technology, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the opposite of biology. And if, if you try to teach engineers how to do um, biological studies, for instance, uh, they can't cope with the idea that, you know, you're not dealing with deterministic systems, you're dealing with or stochastic systems, which means it's all probabilities of what will happen, and there's huge diversity. So, yeah, the, the, the idea that you can have a fix for a health problem, and, and we see that with allopathic medicine, where you give a medicine to fix, and you do trials showing people with, you know, we saw the trials in COVID where you gave no treatment at all, or you gave, you know, ivermectin once a person was sick ignoring the fact that they may be vitamin D deficient and um, vitamin C deficient and zinc deficient and all the rest of it. So ignoring the fact that, you know, drugs will work within a context of other things about the patient. So, yeah, it's, you're right. That's the opposite of One Health. One Health would be looking at all these influences on someone who is at risk of COVID and ensuring that, you know, you minimize these environmental in, in, um 
effects on them. You minimize um, the, you know, you improve their immunity through fitness. You improve their immunity through micronutrients, etc., and um, you get them fresh air. The opposite of what we actually did, even though the people behind One Health, One Health, are the people who pushed this response with lockdowns and so on. So I think exactly. that illustrates that yeah. these people are not serious about exactly. Yeah, and I think this, this points to what I think is the real nature of the problem that we are facing is that what this is ultimately about is giving the institutional um, jurisdiction, essentially, to the World Health Organization and associated institutions to define health in the first place. And once they do that, no matter how woolly and beautiful sounding they make that definition, they can change it. They can amend their regulations down the road to whatever they want, and then they can mandate what they classif classify to be health. And uh, anyone who would trust that process, I mean, to, to me, the fundamental wrong turn there is the idea of the centralization of control in the hands of these institutions. They are, they are already corrupted, but even if you don't think so, well, one day in the future, they might get corrupted. At any rate, that's where the power in this agenda lies. And if people want to approach a natural, holistic approach to the environment and health and these things, that's great if it's voluntary, if they're doing it at the grassroots yeah. level. But when it is institutionalized and wedded into these treaties over which we have no control, that is the heart of the problem. Yes. And within these treaties, so the, the IHR amendments, for instance, it, it talks about, it defines health as in the, the proposals around control of manufacturing and uh, it's, it's manufactured health products. And they define them as anything to do with human well-being. So, you know, it's almost anything for, for that matter. Could you, you could construe as having an impact on health. If you go to the One Health Agenda then, and the fact that these treaties talk about threats to health, threats of an emergency, not an actual harm. So it, it essentially broadens this definition of health and doing something about it to virtually anything in the biosphere, anything to do with human, the way that humans live and any threat, you know, that in any way impairs well-being, which is basically everything about daily life. So they're, they're essentially um, using public health as a vehicle to have really control over almost every normal aspect of human, human life. Yes. So I've shown that the people who are talking about One Health over time have continued to add more and more aspects of life into that One Health basket and more agencies. So I think the UN Environmental Program was the most recent one that was added to this now four agency group that basically manages One Health and has created the One Health high level expert panel to define all sorts of things about One Health because they, they have no good definition. They want a definition that they can uh, use to, to co-opt all sorts of things. And these uh, people on the committee, and very interesting, why, why are these people on the committee? So most of them I never heard of. But then there's somebody from EcoHealth Alliance who became a high-level expert the year she got her PhD. So what, what was so expert about that? And but Marion Koopmans now Marion Koopmans was a, is a head of a department at Erasmus University in the Netherlands, um, chair of Ron Fuchier in her department who um, managed to train uh, avian flu or something else perhaps to travel between ferrets airborne when it wasn't before, 
and uh, in other words, to create a biological weapon. There are these people, these latter two people are clearly there to, to manage the message, right? Um, and they are high level people. <laughs> um, and so the, it's, the way I see this, you know, they're the globalist agenda that is rolled out with the UN, the WHO, um, the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, all these organizations have the same agenda. And then they have a group of professionals who help them carry it out. And that group is actually somewhat limited. Um, these, you know, who knows how they got these people to go along with it. But um, they, these people show up all the time, everywhere, creating uh, pieces of this uh, system for the globalists. So, well, so let's, on, let's hone ahead. in on that phrase that came up earlier that I think is extremely important, the anthropogenic idea that it's human caused. And of course, we see that applied to anthropogenic global warming, which was mm -hmm. baked into the cake at the very foundation of the UNFCCC, the United mm -hmm. Nations Framework on Climate Change, Convention on Climate Change, um, which from its definition of climate change said that climate change is the anthropogenic contribution to natural climate variation. So they, they were literally defining it as the man-made part and thus completely excluding any sort of study of natural variation. Well, what do we need to do that? And that was the basis upon which the IPCC was operating, at least in its early years. So that, that, that's such an incredibly important point because I don't think that emphasis and the, on the anthropogenic principle when it comes to global warming or when it comes to health is by accident. I think it is part of exactly that agenda that you're identifying there, um, Meryl Nass. And we do not have to take take your word for it or my word for it. We can read the writings of people like Alexander King, who, of course, people may or may not know, that one of the co-founders of the Club of Rome, who uh, co-wrote uh, the first global revolution back in 1991. And in chapter five of that book, a official Club of Rome document here, um, they have the section on the common enemy of humanity is man, where they wrote, uh, in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that the pollution, that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat, which must be confronted by everyone together. Well, that sounds reasonable. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap, which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself, period. And then they start on chapter six, where they're talking about the shock waves produced by the drastic changes and upheavals that are coming, like a, I don't know, a great reset. Yes, this is part of an agenda, and it is based on an ideology, which at its base is trying to fundamentally erode or completely eviscerate the idea of bodily autonomy, of health freedom, and ultimately of individual sovereignty. And that is the, the nature of the enemy that we're facing, I think. And that's the ideology that I think we have to be confronting full-throatedly, 100%, full-on in its face. Because yeah. I don't think that these, these terms or ideas just came out of nowhere or spontaneously mm -hmm. wrote. They are being put in there to try to send us down the wrong ideological road. Yeah. So what you just said is that 
the this climate group, instead of saying we're going to look for whether the climate is changing, how it's changing, what the causes might be, they said our assumption is that the climate is changing, it's it's getting warmer, and this is all due to human activity. And we're just going to go from there and figure out how do we change human activity so we can stop the climate from you know, getting hotter because we've decided, we've defined that as the problem without exploring whether it was the problem. Did I get that right? Uh, essentially, yes. And uh, there is more nuance to that. I would, uh, I've done a questions for Corbett episode about this. I've talked about it. I've linked to the document, but go and read the actual UNFCCC convention and you will see in their definitions, climate change is the man-made contribution to natural climate variability. So they, they had it baked into the cake. And that's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was looking at from its inception. They now have some verbiage on their page that, well, we don't follow the UNFCCC definition of climate change, which they added years later when people pointed it out. But at any rate, those early reports were certainly based on the idea this is man-made global warming, and we will look at that in particular. And once we find whatever evidence we find with regards to whatever largely made up equilibrium climate sensitivity numbers they come up with, they will then say the, the, the real meat and potatoes of the IPCC report is about how to influence and change society in order to avoid this, this thing that, look, our computer models are definitely telling us is coming, even though our computer models have been wrong in forecasting absolutely everything <laughs> that's happened over the past 30 years. But trust us, we know what the weather's going to be like in 100 years. Anyway, the, yeah, the point is they are trying to limit it down by definition to man-made climate change so that humanity yeah. is the enemy of man. Yeah, and to think this way, you've got to, you've got to do away with the concept that humans are sort of each human is inestimably valuable as a being. And you've got to see humans as a virus on the planet, which is, is what we're being pushed. And we saw some of this during COVID again, where, you know, the idea that children were a threat to their grandparents and so on, and that some people were a threat to, the, to everyone else. But the, the idea behind the climate change agenda is that humans are a threat to the whole planet. And... Therefore, we're not natural, we're not part of the earth, we're a, we're a plague upon the earth. And it's interesting because you, you always see, um, you know, that these people that you mentioned that keep popping up at the top of a lot of these agendas, they're doing fine and they're jetting around and they're pumping out the carbon and they're living, you know, eating the beef and living a nice life. Um, it's not intended to limit them the the agenda is intended to limit other people which you know presumably will will benefit this small uh, this small group so and that's the same with you know the way that public health is going we've seen an impoverishment of most of the world um and a unprecedented increase in wealth of a small number who were very influential on pushing the COVID response we're seeing the same idea with climate, where there is a small elite that pop off to the COP, whatever we're up to now, 27 or something, in their private jets, and decide that we should close, air, you know, we should plan to close airports and limit travel, etc. Not for them, but for the others, and you know, 15-minute cities, etc., uh, for the residents living in them. So, in the end, this is—I uh, mean, th there's something quite dark under this. Yeah. It, there is a, a movement that is pushing this, which sees other humans as not worth very much and often worth 
far less than you know the animals that they like and the parts of the world that they like that they would like to see human free so it's again you know people need to understand this is this is right outside of normal ethics it's outside of normal moral codes it's it's a very you know we saw some of it in eugenics it's not a new idea yeah. it probably pops yeah. up throughout exactly. human history if it's a, the, the, exactly. we saw it as a Nazis in public health we saw it with eugenics in the 20s and 30s etc absolutely you're so right yeah. about this and there is a historical line of continuity we can trace from Malth malthus yeah. and the malthusians to the eugenics movement to the the early foundations of the the institutions that became the environmental movement of the 1950s 60s onwards the the wwf and others had uh, if you look at who actually founded them and people like julian huxley literally writing about eugenics for the founding document of unesco who ends up uh helping to steer this environmental movement towards uh, global warming, climate change, towards the biosecurity, one health agenda. There is a there is an historical line of continuity, and you're exactly right. It is a, a fundamentally a philosophical, ideological position that is being taken mm -hmm. here that is really anti-human at base. I mean, it is meant to devalue human life. And until we yeah. confront that squarely, I don't think we can understand the various pieces of this puzzle that are slotting into place. But it, it, it devalues the life of others. It doesn't devalue all human life. It devalues the life of... So I think it, it's, it's seeing humans as a, you know, lumps of biology that um, can be dealt with like any innate biological sort of mass or something. And th that doesn't apply to yourself or perhaps your family or your immediate friend who you see as worth something, but th there's no... They don't see an intrinsic worth to a human. Yes, um, yeah. I think that's true. And I, I mean, I think if you go back through history, you know, most civilizations had slaves. And mm. I mean, slaves are, I, I traveled in Africa in 1972 and they had only gotten rid of slavery in Niger just a few years earlier. And only um, officially then. Yeah, right, officially. And certainly there are many in basically indentured servants, even in the United States, people who come from other countries and can't get back and are essentially slaves. So, um, so I would say that the, the ability of humans to devalue other humans mm. is, uh, is, has been proven. But is, is there any evidence of what the carrying capacity of the planet is? Because a lot of people claim the planet just can't, deal with this many people, but they claimed that 50 years ago when there was less than half mm -hmm. as many people. And so do we know? I mean, is... is eh. No, in a scientific sense? Well, uh, we could look at actual evidence from history about that. And so my key reference for this uh, often goes back to Julian Simon, who wrote about the ultimate resource and his work on this subject from an economic point of view. Um, but recently there's been a new book um, called Super Abundance by Tupi and Puli that I would suggest people take a look at, which uh, finds a different way of defining economic growth differently than the economic textbooks will teach you that, that shows a very different answer to that. And they, they confront that question square on about the carrying capacity of the earth, which again is another one of those Malthusian concepts that has been inserted in as if we are on a fixed pie 
and there's nothing you can do about it. And the more people that are eating that pie, well, you're just going to run out of that pie at some point. But actually, what we find is we are on an expanding pie that expands because of human resource, uh, resourcefulness and human ingenuity can change the size and nature of that pie and also affects what we are taking from that pie and how much. I mean, it's, it's a stupid analogy because it starts to break down as soon as it's subjected to any actual thoroughgoing scientific interrogation. But there's a lot to be said about that. But I think the fundamental concept that there's this carrying capacity, it's a fixed number. If we go over that line, mm -hmm. we're all going to die. So we have to, whatever, whatever the case may be, kill everyone above that line or whatever it is. Um, it's yeah, thank you. That, that was what I wanted to get at is that really it's a, it's a bogus concept. It can't be measured. Um, here in the United States, half the fruits and vegetables that are grown get wind up getting thrown away. Um, you know, we export half our grains. And um, did you hear that in New York, they announced over the last couple of days that um, in the public sector, they're reducing meat. They're going to markedly drop the amount of meat that is served. And in some places not serve any meat. And the, it, then it turns out the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, is a vegan. <laughs> so they got him, they got him in. Hopefully they'll replace it with bug protein. So don't worry. Well, the, you know, is that vegan? I mean, really, it, nobody likes these CAFOs, these these poor animals that are confined to to terrible lives in tiny spaces, um, being fed garbage. Nobody wants that. But there is a lot of land in the United States, and we could graze animals, and probably there is enough land. I mean, to, to I mean. You can graze animals on land that's no good for farming, right? You raise such an important point, Meryl. I want to underline that, that this is about the industrial factory farming system that has been created by these big industrial giants and for the profit of a very few, obviously, that is clearly against anything that would actually be a One Health agenda and holistic approach to uh, humans and their environment. This is not natural. This is horrible. And everyone understands, whoever looks into the industrial factory farming system, that this is terribly wrong. But don't worry, they'll come along with the fix for this, which is even more um, institutional and, and industrial tinkering with this food supply. So now we're all going to get lab meat and, and and bug protein and other such wonderful innovations. And oh, by the way, just came out recently, a new study finds that the lab-grown meat will actually be 25 times more burden on the environment than the natural eating of actual meat. But uh, details, shmeetails, there's a technocratic solution to this. Yes, well, exactly. There's a solution that makes a profit. And I mean, uh, to me, I think most of this is really concentrating the food supply in a few hands, which is like concentrating medicine or health in a few hands as printing money for those that do it. And the interesting thing about, thing about how many people the, the earth can support. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons why we are feeding quite well the people on the earth um, is that carbon dioxide has increased and carbon dioxide increases plant growth and you know the CSIRO in Australia has measured about 30 to 40 percent increase in plant growth over the last century and you know you, you pump CO2 into greenhouses um, in order to increase plant growth the um, you know there is a lot more food grown in warmer regions of the earth than in the Arctic and you know obviously the Antarctic so 
it's not saying you know climate change is good or bad or it's anthropogenic predominantly or not but it's a reality that we're actually going to grow more food as the earth warms a bit yes um and nobody's talking about that are they um well no they're not because because we're not allowed to talk uh, yeah you say what i just said and you will be accused of being you know, a climate denier or something, which is just silly. You're funded I mean, by big oil, David. Clearly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the Middle Ages, they were growing barley in Greenland and they were grazing cattle. Yeah, So, you know, the, the climate has been warmer before, it's been colder before, it has been going up over the last 100 years for whatever reason. Yeah, and, you know, if we're having a big influence on it, we, we need to moderate that influence in a sensible way that we can, you know, come to a consensus as humans to do. But... The, what, the problem with all of this is that just that you know, anything that's um, monetizable is, is stolen and co-opted by, um, let's say, this group. But it's by a small, amoral group of um, humans who have a lot of power. And it is used, and anyone who tries to have a rational conversation about it is denigrated because, it, it, you know, truth puts these people at risk as it puts any sort of fascist ideology at risk. Yes. So um, do we have evidence that it's the same people who are bringing us the biosecurity agenda, the attack on food, the attack on our old energy sources, and um, the 15-minute cities, mm -hmm. you know, the, limit, the limitations I, of meat? May I, may I submit as Exhibit A, uh, my documentary, Who is Bill Gates? Because um, I certainly don't think Bill Gates is the person in charge of all mm -hmm. of this, but he is certainly representative of the nexus of these very many different agendas. And I think it's just representative of, of this ideology. But there's an example where you can find every single spoke of this agenda seems to there, there seems to be a hub there at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I, I would submit that as one example that we could look to. Well, another obvious example is the World Economic Forum, which is essentially a, a rich person's corporate club, in you know, private club in Switzerland, where you know these agendas, agendas again, are very centred. And and they, like one you just mentioned, they, they bring in the supposedly democratically elected leaders who meet behind closed doors and, you know, have been doing these deals at Davos for 20 or 30 years. So the, 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 they, they're not just pushing the corporate side, they're very much pushing the political side of this as well. Yeah. So I would say that um, the World Economic Forum managed to come up with this idea of young global leaders. And now we know we're, we're dealing with the um, horrible results from that, which it's extraordinary that Klaus Schwab was able to identify these people who would buy his ideology and push it out and do what he tells them. I mean, extraordinary to find so many people and then give them the opportunities to lead countries. I mean, Santa Marin, um, uh, Ardern, Linda, yeah. Ardern, and and uh, Trudeau in Canada. The, you know, people who are unqualified, really, who have nothing to offer, but somehow were chosen and elevated into these positions. Um, it, you know, it's like skull and bones, where you, I think everybody in that club gives everybody else a leg up. Um, yeah, and you have to be careful here. This isn't some sort of theory. This is what the World Economic Forum is explicitly saying they're doing. So you're not making this up. You're repeating what Klaus Schwab is saying he is doing. Yeah. Yes. And so they're doing the same thing with One Health. 
right? They're trying to create a cadre of people who will follow the One Health agenda and push it out. So they're looking for their basically young global leaders in One Health. And I would suspect they're looking for them for these other things too, for energy, for new types of housing, et cetera. And um, so, so we're sort of at the pinnacle now where the corporatization of governance has completely taken over and there, there is no autonomy left and they've decided we are to be utilized for the purposes of generating profit. Um, I think the, uh, I also think that there has been enticement uh, of these globalists with the idea that they can inject us, that this gives them a means of control that is sort of beyond anything else possible. Yeah. That if they have the ability to mandate injections, um, they can create what they want. They can create a new new man or woman. And um, they can. I, I disagree that they've completely taken control. I think they've taken a lot of control, and they think they've taken a lot of control. But I don't think they have complete control. I, I think there's still a big chunk of humanity that is in a position to stop. Yeah, no, I think they have taken control of governance in yes. the developed countries. They have not taken control of all the people. And not, not all the politicians either. Right, that's true. But, but that's governance true. overall, yes. Yeah, yeah they, they found the key people that they needed to, you know, corrupt in some way or, in, in some, you know, manage to, or the people who are appoint, you know, all these heads of, Departments in the United States are appointed, right? All the secretaries. So you just have a stable of people who are will reliably do what you want. And they may or may not have competence, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, I think what we are witnessing really is the, uh, the attempt to colonize the minds of the people. This is after they have taken institutional control in, in so many different ways. I think they they have to try to foist this agenda, obviously, on the population. And what better way to do that than to make the average person want it? And that is why the One Health agenda and the Great Reset and all of these things are always framed within the language that people listening not very carefully will think comports with their view of the world. So, oh, it's about a holistic mm -hmm. approach to health and yeah. being in tune yeah. with the environment. And it's about it's about uh, equity and inclusion and whatever buzzwords are floating through. And I think as the rubber starts to meet the road more and more and people start to see what this agenda really entails, that's where we start to see the pushback. And we're seeing that, mm -hmm. for example, the Dutch farmers protests and other such things are these flashpoints where we start to see the agenda meeting the, uh, the resistance from the people. And that's why I think it, ultimately, I think this is a battle for the mind. I think it's about ideology. Mm -hmm. I think we have to clearly mm -hmm. understand what the ideology of these people are and articulate that as clearly as possible to others so that they realize, oh, this is, a, this is an agenda that's not in our interests. This is not what is being sold to the public. This is something different. And once people understand that, I do think we can get these people out of those positions of power. Heck, I'd like to abolish the positions of power altogether. I don't think they should exist, but one step at a time. Well, you know, this is great. I thank you for a wide-ranging conversation today. Gentlemen, appreciate the fact that you have participated. 
And um, we maybe got into more than <laughs> than we expected here, but um, I think a very, very useful conversation. And I um, really agree with you, James. Once people have the discernment to realize they are being played, you are being played. You know, your standard of living has been going down since the 1970s. You know, we used to be able to support a family with one income. Can't do that anymore. Used to be able to buy your own house. Well, in a lot of most places, you can't do that anymore. And um, do we want this? And do we need it? And, you know, they're trying to make most of us uh, meaningless. They're sort of vaguely promising a uh, an income, a sort of a low income for people who can stay home and play video games all day. Do you really think that's going to happen? Do you think that the um, globalists who are trying to take over every aspect of our lives are going to let us play video games comfortably at home? Well, as someone said today, actually, in a course, on the, it's essentially you know, universal basic income you're talking about. It's a ration card, and that's what they're talking about with central bank digital currency and as well. The, it's a ration card to, to use on what they allow you to use it on. Exactly. If right. you're lucky. But, you know, for how long, mm. right? It, it yeah. may, well, the ration, the ration will be card, reduced. Don't worry. Yeah. 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 The yeah. ration card is good when it starts mm. to get buy-in. Yeah, then, then you're stuck. Anyway, um, let me end this here. I thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And um, I'll see you, James, next month. Uh, yes, we will be meeting in Bath, so we should let the audience know if they don't know. We'll be at the Better Way Conference, so I'm look very much looking forward to meeting you in person. Me too. Thanks, yes, sir. we're going to have fun in a couple of weeks in Bath, England, so everybody tune in for that. That is the um, World Council for Health um, Better Way Conference. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>